Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Good morning, Ashley. Well, good morning and happy birthday week. Well, thank you. (laughs) Happy birthday to you too. Thank you. Thank you. I guess probably we should mention our birthdays are very close together. We are just days apart. Just days apart. So it's always fun. We get we get to celebrate together. Mm -hmm. This will be a great way to celebrate because I think this is going to be a very fun episode. Mm, I'm excited. What is it? Oh well, here you go. Here I'll ask you a question to see if this clues you in at all. Okay. So Ashley, who comes to mind when I ask you about some famous detectives? Famous detectives: Mm -hmm. Hercule Poirot. Okay. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, Miss Marple, Nancy Drew, ah, mm, Encyclopedia Brown. <laughs> that's who. I, that's who I read. I guess those those folks. I love that. You know what I really love about it? What I wondered if men, mm-hmm. if male detectives, would be the ones that would automatically pop to your mind. Mm-hmm. And I love that you automatically went to both. Right? You yes. you named both male and female detectives because Nancy Drew. Yes, I love it. She just pointed. She just pointed up to her, her shelf where she has the lost files of Nancy Drew. I love that. And right there, look right there. Oh, All yeah. the Nancy Drews right there. Right in front of us. This uh-huh. is awesome. Our focus today is a lady that I had not heard of before, but you're going to love this. Okay. She has been called the first female Ghostbuster. Yes. Yes. I just got chills. Awesome. So this is who we're going to be focused on today. Okay. And I think you're going to find this absolutely fascinating. Mm, I'm excited. I cannot wait. I should start by saying that I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before in any of our episodes, but I love the podcast Criminal. In fact, it's what inspired my thought for our podcast because Criminal, if you've never listened to it, it has the central theme of crime. So every time you listen to an episode, you'll right. you never know what you're going to get, but somehow crime is going to be at the center of it. And so I remember I approached Ashley and said, what if we had a podcast where you never know what you're going to get, but somehow the entertainment industry yeah. is at the center of it. Yes. And so that inspired Scandal Water. And as I was listening to an episode of Criminal back in October, it was actually episode 175 for the called The Ghost Racket Crusade. Phoebe Judge, the host of that podcast, was interviewing a fellow named Tony Wolf, mm-hmm. who had written a book called Houdini's Girl Detective, The oh. Real-Life Ghostbusting Adventures of Rose Mackenberg. And oh. that's what inspired this entire episode that we are about to tape. Very cool. So huge shout out. And also inspiring the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> so Thank you, Phoebe Judge, if you're listening. (laughs) Rose Mackenberg is tied up very tightly with Houdini. So I cannot jump into Rose's story without backing it up and really laying a foundation by giving the backstory of how Houdini and even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Uh, led into her involvement with this ghost racket. So we're going to back it way up. Okay, my my mom will be, mom Rebecca will be very pleased with this episode. Houdini is one of her heroes. Oh, really? Yes, yes. It was hard for me to stay focused because... 
because I really wanted to just go off and just well, live you know, in Houdini. October's and, and coming up, so he can be in October. We can come back to Harry Houdini. Yes. That's right. All right. Well, you're going to hear quite a bit about him today anyway, because I just couldn't do it. I, okay. We, we have to lay some foundations. Okay. So you'll also, before we jump in, you'll notice that I put on this scarf in honor of our conversation. My <laughs> sister gave me the scarf for Christmas. Mm-hmm. It has the Hound of Baskerville's text all over it. Ooh. It's in honor of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes. She knows I like literary things. Yes. So I have a Sir Arthur Conan Doyle scarf that I'm wearing right now because we're going to begin by talking about the relationship between Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who's famous for the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, mm-hmm. and Harry Houdini. What- they were besties. You knew that. I why, did. why don't you well, tell us what you do know? Oh, well, a lot of my knowledge, some of my knowledge is peripheral, but a lot of it comes from my, again, from my mom, Rebecca, who researched Houdini to put in her children's book that she wrote. Oh, uh, cool. It's a Liberty book. The name is Liberty's Adventures Through Time. So she did all of this stuff about Houdini and she would share it with me. And she loved him so much that she like painted his portrait. She's got it hanging in wow. like her house and she just admires him. But they were very close friends, but they did not agree about the spiritual aspect mm-hmm. of life. Arthur Conan Doyle was, a, was he a spiritualist? He was. Okay. And Houdini was not. He was a skeptic. He was a skeptic. After Houdini passed away, he had this agreement with his wife that if he could contact her outside of the grave, that he would say this certain phrase. And she waited for 10 years and went mm-hmm. to lots of seances and he never said that phrase. Right. So, but every time they would go to a seance, Houdini was able to see what the trick was because he was a magician. It made Conan Doyle very mad. Ah, well, you have a lot of good background (laughs) knowledge. I love it. Well, we're actually picking up with what you'd already mentioned, the fact that they were friends at one point, Mm -hmm. great friends. In fact, they actually vacationed together for a few days in Atlantic City back in 1922. I was able to look up the Atlantic City Weekly newspaper and find Uh a photograph and an article about these two very, very famous men and their families Uh who had spent this time together. Of course, that was big news for the people in that town. So they were definitely going to cover that. That's famous best friends. Oh, goodness. Yeah. They spent this time in Atlantic City. They hung out together. In fact, I believe it was who... Dini, who maybe taught Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's kids, one of his kids to swim. I mean, they were really having a great time together. But then because of something that happened that weekend, it led to the ending of their friendship. So here's what happened. Um, And of course, it was, as you said, it was really over the issue of spiritualism. So if you're not sure what spiritualism is, Mm -hmm. it was a religious movement centered on the belief that the spirit survives earthly death. And therefore, it can communicate with the living. So people who believe in spiritualism believe that you can communicate with people from the afterlife. Would it be like psychics now? Psychics, through the help of mediums, through seances, all these different things would be ways to allow this communication between people from Earth and people who have passed on. Okay. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle believed strongly in spiritualism. In fact, he is said to be basically one of their most famous spokespeople. He was a leader of their movement. At the time that they were spending this weekend together, Houdini was not a believer in spiritualism, but he wanted to be. Mm -hmm. He was actually a skeptic who hoped that there was a way to communicate with people from the afterlife. Like he desperately wanted it to be true Mm -hmm. because he really hoped that he could communicate with his mom. He was grieving her deeply, loved her dearly, And he really would love to have communicated with her, 
but he didn't hold out a lot of hope because of his experiences. And we're going to dig into all of this a lot more deeply. I'm just hitting the surface right now. But Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and his wife, huge believers. According to several sources, it mentioned that they feel like Sir Arthur was a believer because he thought he had actually been contacted by his son Kingsley during one seance. Kingsley had died in the last days of the war. From the war? Yes, during he was involved with uh, World War I and, and had somehow been killed with that. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle felt like he'd had contact with his son. That that, makes a lot of sense. mm -hmm. He's got a very deep emotional need for this to be true. And it goes beyond that because that was one source. Another source said that he had several members of his family that he had lost. One of them, of course, being his son, but (laughs) also a brother. Mm. And it seemed to imply that maybe there were others as well. And it was either due to the war or, remember, they had also just come out of the Spanish flu of 1918, which had wiped out a lot of people. So as you were saying he was very vulnerable, had a great need, I think, to believe that he could contact, and he thought he had. So regardless, all the sources agree that Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, was very ardent in his beliefs about the spiritualism, and he was a huge spokesperson promoting spiritualism. Now, little side note, piggybacking on what you and I just discussed, Mm -hmm. not just Conan Doyle, but a lot of people were turning to spiritualism at this time because of these deep losses people had suffered from the war and from the Spanish flu epidemic. Mm -hmm. So it was a grieving world, and they think that that is why why so many, not just Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but so many were very open to believing in and spiritualism. To it. Yes, they were desperate to believe there was a way to contact their loved ones. Did spiritualism originate with the Fox sisters? Ooh, tell me about that. I don't know this. Oh, I don't know enough about it to speak on it eloquently, but the Fox sisters were two girls who claimed to be able to do exactly that contact beyond, but they were, they later admitted, and this is very glazing over the story, mm-hmm. but they were huge, but they admitted later that they were scamming people. Mm. So yeah, I had not come across them. They'd be but... an interesting episode later. And I'm sure there's people out there who are very proficient in knowledge about them and will go, you left out this, but that's just the very basic. Mm-hmm. Well... Not only Sir Arthur, but his wife, who was referred to as Lady Jean Conan Doyle. Many people just called her Lady Doyle for short. Okay. She also was a believer. And in fact, she considered herself to be a medium. And she really, they commented in Criminal was one of the sources where they commented that she truly believed this. Like she felt like this was a real thing. They don't think that this was any type of a scam at all. And so because she considered herself to be a medium and they knew Harry was wanting to contact his His mother, mother, this couple invited invited their dear friend to their suite at the Ambassador Hotel on that Sunday, June 18th, 1922, as they were vacationing together and invited Harry to be part of the seance where they were specifically going to try to contact Harry's mother, Cecilia Weiss. Okay. It was just the three of them. Okay. And of course, by the way, this is something that came up over and over again. Anytime that they were contacting people, trying a medium was trying to contact someone from the afterlife, it was always a thing that you were in a darkened room. I think that was a huge belief that this was important to being able to make this contact with the spirit world. Okay. So I'm picturing the three of them in this hotel room. Closing out the weekend. Closing out the weekend, dark. And of course, Harry is a skeptic. Right. But he kept that to himself. 
Oh, he didn't tell them that he, he was? He did not tell oh. them that he was going into this from a skeptical stance. And, oh. and he did want to contact his sure. mother. I think he was always hoping that this yeah. would happen. But a quote from him, a recollection that he shared later was that he closed his eyes and tried to rid his mind of all but religious thoughts. So he went into it with an open mind trying to really go with this. Okay. Now, Lady Doyle believed herself to be a psychographer. She was an amateur psychographer. That means that she believed she could channel spirits through writing. So in other words, the spirit's way of communicating through her as the medium to the loved ones that they were trying to reach would be through writing things on paper. Okay. So here's how Harry described what happened. He said that during the seance, Lady Doyle suddenly grabbed a pencil with her right hand and with spasmodic jerk, she kind of started to hit her hand against the table saying that the force had taken hold of her. Mm. And then she started writing. And before it was all done, she had filled 15 sheets of paper and these were all supposed to be messages from Harry's mother. Okay. Harry goes through this entire seance. He's very polite. He says very little. At one point later, I believe Sir Arthur Conan Doyle commented that he looked grim, but I think he took that as like he was really into it. He was very serious. And when it was over, he thanked them. He took the papers and he left. So he didn't know it was on the paper yet? I don't know. I'm assuming she she was saying things out loud, but I think, but that's just my inference. Okay. But here's what we took away from it. Sir, Arthur Conan Doyle felt like the seance was a huge success. Right. He believed that through that experience, he'd made some strides in winning Harry Houdini over to the side of believing in spiritualism. And this is a big deal because Harry Houdini is one of the most famous people in the world. He's incredibly well known as a magician and he's touring. He's making lots of money. This is a famous guy as is, of course, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. That's what I mean. Like, these are pretty important besties. they are. And if you can win over Harry Houdini, that's Oh, that's huge, right? Think about how many people you could bring to your side. Yes. But what he didn't know was that Harry was just being polite during that seance. A source quoted Harry as recollecting later that he, quote, I did not have the nerve to tell him, basically that he was totally unconvinced by what had happened. But he went in there with an open mind. He did. He he And then whatever happened during it, he said this is bunk. Right. And here are some of the reasons why Why? he felt it was bunk. When he was looking at those papers more closely, these are just a a few examples. I'm sure there was probably more. But one of the things he immediately noticed was at the top of the first page, there was a cross. His mother was the wife of a rabbi. She would never, that was not a symbol that meant anything to her. She would never have put that on the paper. So that was a red flag to him. All the pages were written in English. That was not his mother's native language. She barely spoke English. He didn't feel like that's the way she would have communicated. She referred to him as Harry in the message. And that wasn't his name. That wasn't his given name. He was born Eric Weiss Mm -hmm. and she did not refer to him as Harry. She would have called him Eric. Mm, Probably, I'm assuming, or some other, you know, nickname. Right. Mm -hmm. And a fourth example, she had written things like, here's a quote, it's so different over here, so much larger and bigger and more beautiful, all sweetness all around. Now I can rest in peace. And these were just not things that sounded at all like his mother. He felt like they were kind of platitudes, like cliche things. This was not the way his mother would have talked to him had she been able to actually reach her son. So he was not at all convinced. But he respected his friendship with Sir Conan Doyle and his wife, and so he kept it to himself. Okay. But then a few months later... Did Conan Doyle have to say, what do you think, man? What do you think? Well, worse than that. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle published an account about the seance publicly, which basically gave the opinion that Harry seemed to believe it was true. He was was kind of... Yes. 
And so Harry started to receive letters from people asking, was this true? Did he really feel like he had contacted his mother? And then he, he felt compelled to respond. Yeah. And so that's where it all went wrong with their friendship because in the fall, Houdini wrote a story for the New York Sun in which he openly expressed how he felt. Here's a quote. I have never seen or heard anything that could convince me there is a possibility of communication with the loved ones who have gone beyond. Oh. So he so he basically called it out and said, no, yeah. that seance was not real. And from that point on, their friendship was broken and it just progressed to the point to where they became bitter rivals. Oh. Not only was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle upset about the friendship and Harry Houdini speaking out against spiritualism, but he also felt like he kind of dissed his wife. So it was, it was personal. It was very personal. Was well, the personal. whole thing was personal, but Conan Doyle should not have published that first paper without asking him first. Agreed. It could have it been solved if he just, you don't call somebody on the phone back then, but if you'd written him a letter or ask him a couple days later, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And then he would have told him and they could have quietly disagreed but by bringing it to a public scale you forced him into answering you on a public scale i guess houdini could have emailed him, not emailed <laughs> i guess houdini could have responded to him privately but he was having too many people ask him publicly so he had to respond publicly it's funny my brain goes off on little tangents they would have had phones then right would they i don't know i think so i know a lot but i don't know that mm-hmm. we'll have to figure that one okay. out guys we can't we can't keep up with everything here <laughs> but i just had them emailing each other. So this is actually where I'm going to let Sir Arthur Conan Doyle drop out of our story. Although just a little side note, this was something that fascinated me. I did not realize that he had become so involved with spiritualism. It had become such a religion to him that he had pretty much put aside his fiction writing. Like he was was not even writing anymore. And he focused on touring and promoting this. Yeah, because his wife was into it Mm -hmm. and they needed it. They needed it because they needed to think that they had heard from their son. That's why when Houdini said it isn't real. Now you're going to the core of what he believes, which is, I believe my son spoke to me Mm -hmm. and he cannot be talked out of that. So he had to go against him. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, we're going to follow Harry a little further though, because we're still trying to get to Rose. Okay. All right. Here we are with Harry. He is definitely becoming stronger in his anti-spiritualism stance. So let's talk just a little bit more about this relationship with his mother, because this is really kind of at the core too. I think, I think what you said to me, resonates. It's the emotional connections Mm -hmm. here. It's the vulnerability. It's Mm -hmm. the deepest desire to reach their loved ones that Mm -hmm. causes both of these men to Mm -hmm. be so absolutely diehard Mm -hmm. in their stances because they're both coming at it from the most heartfelt place. Harry's mother, Cecilia Weiss, had died in 1913. Harry was beyond close to her. He was absolutely heartbroken when he lost her. He called her his angel on earth. And he desperately wanted to try to contact her after her death. And it mentioned he also wanted to contact his dad too, but it was his his mother that I kept hearing about. I think it's because he wasn't with her when she died. That's what my mom had told me that they were, and he felt such guilt for not being Mm. with her that he wanted to talk to her. Yeah, that would make sense. He had gone out of his way to try to reach her a number of times. And I think you might've even said this earlier, but the more he tried to go to seances and try to reach his mother, the more he became aware of the outright trickery and mm-hmm. deception that was going on because he could see through the tricks. He could see what these people were doing and he just grew more and more disgusted and outraged by what they were doing to him. And then he broadened it. He saw what they were doing to all these other people right. who were grieving right. and just as desperate to reach their loved ones. Right. And then it became like a crusade. A cru- I was going to say crusade. Mm-hmm. Yep. It also, this was an interesting side note. It didn't help <laughs> ease his guilt or his feelings that he himself had been guilty of this in his early 
early days. What's that? Tricking people who were trying to reach their loved ones. In his very early days as a struggling magician, he and Bess didn't have money. They traveled for a while on a carnival route and they made, well, Harry made money by pretending to be a psychic who would do cold readings for people. His trick was that he would go into a new town. He would go to the cemetery, look at, you know, who had died recently, look at names of people, kind of look at for relationships there, go and look at newspapers, archives, talk to people, find out information. And then because he was so smart, Mm -hmm. he could sit there in a cold reading and by asking the right questions, by being very vague, oh, Mm -hmm. I feel that you've lost someone recently. You know, just by doing those vague things, he could take money from people and make them feel like they had somehow gotten some communications from their loved ones. He felt terrible about this, of course, later later in his life Mm -hmm. when he saw things from a very different standpoint. So even though Harry Houdini himself really wanted spiritualism to be legitimate, he wrote at one point, this is another quote, the more I investigate the subject, the less I can make myself believe. And this caused him to become more and more vigilant about declaring Declaring an outright war against spiritualism because he just felt outraged on the part of himself, but also all these other people who had a crippling hope that they were going to get to their loved ones and they were just being tricked and scammed Mm -hmm. and cheated in Mm -hmm. such a horrible way. Mm -hmm. So beginning in the 1920s, he embarked on what they referred to as a second career as a professional skeptic and a debunker of psychics, mind readers, mediums and other spiritualists who said that they were able to contact the deceased. So him and Conan Doyle both had second careers. If Conan Doyle abandoned his fiction career to promote it, he's going on the second career to debunk it. Yes, absolutely. Now, he did not give up his his magic shows. He he found a way to incorporate it. It was a part-time it. job. It, exactly. Okay. There you go. It was like he took on two jobs. Now, remember, this is the early 1920s. He was So he was already a skeptic in 1922 when he went into that seance with Lady Doyle, but that just fueled the fire, right? Okay. That just escalated everything. So in 1924, Houdini published A Magician Among the Spirits, which was a book in which he outright debunked some of the most common tricks that mediums use things like their wobbling tables or floating objects. Mm. And he had a quote here that said, whenever any of these alleged spiritual mediums tell you that they have supernatural aid, you may safely set them down as frauds. Ooh. So he's now starting to publicly do expose, okay. mm-hmm, expose people. And he would do it publicly in his magic shows as oh. well. He would get on stage and he would sometimes show how things were done. So for example, one of the tricks that would commonly happen would be a ringing bell. A medium, you would be in a dark room. They would call them the sitter, the person who was trying to reach their loved ones. A lot of times they referred to them as the sitter. So the sitter might be in there with the medium and the medium would have said something to the departed person. Are you there? Ring a bell or or let us know if you're here. And then of course there would be this ringing bell. And the person who was in the room, the sitter would think, well, this has to be legitimate because I'm right beside this medium. Sometimes the medium would even say, place your hands over top of mine so that you'll know I'm not tricking you. So they would think, well, there's no way they're doing this. How could they be ringing a bell? It was in the dark. Well, on stage You got some dude in the shadows. (laughs) (laughs) Better than that. (laughs) One day while he's on tour, Houdini is on stage. He's elevated. He's sitting at the table mimicking the way this would look in the seance room. And he shows how under the table he took off his shoe and used his toes to grab and ring a bell. They didn't hear that the sound was coming from underneath them? 
I think this was something that came up. In fact, I believe a quote will probably come up about this in just a little bit. But people so desperately Desperately. wanted to believe that sometimes they would let their skepticism go Mm -hmm. and they would just embrace whatever happened because they needed that hope. That makes sense. Yeah. He's exposing tricks of the mediums in this book publicly. And it said by 1925, Houdini was spending the equivalent of half a million dollars a year to reveal the tricks of these trickster mediums who were pretending to contact the dead people for money. That's serious. Right. And here's where we finally bring Rose in. Rose the Ghostbuster. (laughs) Rose the Ghostbuster. As part of his crusade, Houdini actually hired a group of people that he referred to as his own secret service to help start exposing the scam artists. Rose Mackenberg was a private eye, a female private eye in New York, and she ends up getting recruited as his top undercover agent. Oh, what did she do? Well, we're going to go into it more deeply, but just a, a little teaser is she only ended up working for Houdini for something like two years, but through her two-year stint working for him, she is reported to have investigated more than 300 psychics or seers, and she is quoted as saying, I smell a rat before I smell the incense. <laughs> So Rose is awesome. Rose is awesome. (laughs) So let's talk about Rose. Rose Mackenberg was born on July 10th, 1892 in Brooklyn to Louis and Anna Mackenberg, who were immigrants from Russia. As a young woman, Rose worked as a stenographer in a law office and then moved into becoming her own job, a private detective. When a banker one day asked her to look into a medium who had advised him to invest in a stock that then turned out to be worthless, mm. she went to Houdini to get some advice. Because he's because so public about this. Exactly. Ah. He was so famous at that point for his crusade against psychic swindlers. Yeah. And so this interaction changes her life because not only did Houdini advise her how to uncover that fraud but then he recruited her to join his team that's awesome i want to know how you go from being a stenographer to just your own private (laughs) eye that seems like a big jump that i need to know more about it does to me too but it says over and over again how smart she was how sharp how savvy i'm gonna make an inference that working in that law office noticing how things were done seeing the behind the scenes she just moved into it that's amazing yeah i mean and this is 19 like 24 Mm -hmm. think about that 1924 this is not a time when women were well it kind of is though because now we have the flappers right so i'm thinking that women kind of enjoyed this little burst of freedom and burst of equality before they kind of got tamped down again with the 50s you know Mm, i feel like in the 1950s they went back to just being the just quote unquote being housewives we know how hard it is to be a housewife we're not Mm -hmm. dissing housewives at all i think they're amazing but society at large Mm -hmm. right kind of thing but i think in the early 20s they did experience this kind of rush of and then suffragette that True. had just passed so and with this is right after world war one mm-hmm. and the women of course their role they've been um, well, seen as taking an important step forward because they had to fill in so many gaps exactly for the men were and missing. A, in a little bit more of a morbid sense we just talked about the spanish flu there may not have been enough men to do the jobs mm. if everybody yeah. had just unfortunately died you know you still need people to do these jobs maybe that helped i don't know we're talking we're, we're armchairing it real well, early that's right we are making a lot of guesses right yeah. now but anyway you look at it she's go awesome. rose she's private awesome. detective in 1924. So as we said, Houdini recruits her. She becomes one of his very best undercover spies. In fact, one article said that she became widely known as the spook spy. (laughs) She was sharp, 
She was quick-witted and she was a skeptic by nature. But one of her biggest talents was that she was super amazing with her disguises. And Mm. she would use her disguises to create a variety of personas in order to do her undercover work. Very cool. Here's what would happen. She was the Gary Oldman of the 1920s. (laughs) I love it. That's a great comparison. Thank you. So when Houdini would tour in 1925 to 26, of course, all of his stops were mapped out well in advance. So what he would do is he would send members of his secret service, and Rose was almost always part of that because she was like his number one, Mm -hmm. and she would be sent into a town a few weeks in advance of when he was going to get there. And the job would be to investigate spiritualists who were working in that area. So the first thing Rose would do is she would immediately go to a local department store because she would get a feel for how do the women in this area dress? Okay. How do they talk to each other? Can I pick up any information? Mm. You know, and this would help her create her identities that she was going to use in that town to go to the department store i know she is smart and then she created so many different disguises in fact this was the cutest thing spoiler alert later she ends up publishing a lot of newspaper articles where she debunks she she kind of exposes some things and she talks about all of her tricks of the trade and there is this adorable photo that actually shows her in a bunch of her disguises so i'm going to make sure that that we post that guys so that you can take a look it's adorable but some of her identities were the rustic school teacher, <laughs> the credulous servant girl, oh. the tipsy consultant, Uh-oh. the bereaved widow. Oh. I mean, she had it all. Okay. And so she had all these different identities. And when you look at the pictures, she looks, looks like different. That. She looks different in Definitely her photos. Definitely Gary Oldman. She's amazing. She was also cute. She had a good sense of humor because some of her favorite aliases were Alicia Bunk, which when you break it down was supposed to mean all is bunk. Oh. And then she would go by Francis Rod, which was F Rod fraud. Okay. <laughs> so she she had a great sense of humor. Yeah. So she would get her disguises down. And then during her stay in that town, she would visit as many psychics as she could using her different disguises so that nobody knew what was going on. Was she the same person to each psychic or? It didn't specifically say that, but my assumption is she changed her disguises when she would go to different places to make sure that they weren't talking to each other and nobody would catch on to things because she needed to expose as many as she could. Right. So as she would travel to the different mediums or psychics, she would analyze the tricks they were using. She would take detailed notes and then later when she got to Harry Houdini she would share all of that with him and then during his magic shows in that town he would straight up call out some of those mediums and psychics right there in front of like all the townspeople oh, and expose wow. some of their tricks. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was big time. I they mean, are this bold. Was, this was poking the bear. Yes, it was. I mean, beyond poking Ooh. the bear. In fact, it talked about how much money he had to uh, use just to defend himself from lawsuits and things. <laughs> I bet. And, and he had death threats at different yes, times from spiritualists. Yes. yes, and was... from the family members who are now knowing that they were tricked and don't want to be tricked. So right. they're, they'd rather get rid of the guy that's saying it's not true. Yeah. Mm. Well, here's an example of one encounter that that Rose had just to give an idea of how some of these con artists work. In 1925, Rose visited Charles Gonzalez, who was a medium in Indianapolis, who had described himself in a letter that he had written to Houdini, a very angry letter. He'd said that he was one of the leaders of spiritualism in America. So now Rose is going to go visit oh, him. Oh yeah, she's okay. going to flush him out. <laughs> in this instance, she pretended to be a grieving mother who had just lost a baby mm. who had died a few months earlier. And so her premise there was that she wanted to 
check on her baby in the afterlife. Well, this fella, Charles Gonzalez, claimed that he had contact with an 800-year-old Hindu guide in the spirit world who helped him contact the loved ones. And he also had his own spirit wife who he called Ella. And so he told Rose that for $25, which was a lot back then. Yes, it is. He could teach her how to access the afterlife by gazing into a bowl of water. But it would be easier for her to make the contact with the Hindu guide if she took off all her clothes. What? Yeah. She ended up declining and leaving that one. But she reported all of this, of course, to Houdini when she saw him. And when he arrived in Indianapolis six weeks later, he gave a performance that Gonzalez attended. And Houdini confronted him from the stage, telling the audience all about what had happened to Rose. And they said that Gonzalez mumbled from a seat that, that, oh, he hated fraud himself. And he ended up like fleeing the theater as people were jeering him from the audience. So this is an example of an encounter that kind of gives us an idea of how this might have gone. Okay. So before we move on, why don't we take a quick break? Sure. And we are back. So picking up on that example that we just shared, I thought it would be fun to give you a few more examples of tricks that Rose ended up exposing. One of those was the illusion related to ghostly hands appearing during a seance. Okay. Now remember, we've said this before, the darkness was huge. In terms of being able to fool people, mm-hmm. it was key that they always had these dim rooms. Hide them in the shadows. Mm-hmm. So the ghostly hand trick, what Rose discovered was the mediums would wear dark gloves that would hide what their arms were doing. And then in advance, the medium would have prepared these white opera gloves that would be dipped into some type of phosphorus substance to make them glow. Those little white gloves would be kind of suspended like on the end of a stick. And the medium at some point, as they were, you know, very strategically choosing a moment when the spirit person was supposed to be contacting the loved one, that these hands, the medium would hold out the stick and these hands would appear to be kind of suspended in the air glowing Mm -hmm. white and the loved one would think this was some kind of a message from the spirit world i bet it was radium in the 20s it might phosphorus Mm -hmm. glowing yeah that's the height of the radium that would make sense another trick was table tipping in order to seem very legitimate a lot of times the medium would say put your hand over top of mine that Uh you'll know i'm not doing anything but they would rig things up i don't know if i can describe this well enough but the medium would have on like a dark glove and there would be like this little wooden object that was kind of shaped almost like half of a square and it would hook under the table so even though the hand of the medium was flat on the table this little piece of wood was hooked under the table so if they moved their hand so if they moved their hand at all it would wobble the table or if they lifted their wrist they could lift the table a little bit it was just kind of basically a little hook you would still feel that though if the person had their hand over top of them they would feel that mm, I guess it's like you said they just want it to be true they really wanted it to be true and Rose again remember we have some newspaper articles coming up where she's exposing these things Mm -hmm. we have a picture of this we'll include that because I think if you see it if if our listeners see it it'll make more sense to you so these are just a couple of examples of the tricks that she was able to share with Houdini who exposed it publicly during his actual magic shows but also things that she came back later in these newspaper articles and publicly exposed to that audience using pictures and everything. And and that's also what helped to promote her own 
fame okay. later in life. Does okay. that make sense? It does, yes. Okay. The situations that Rose was in obviously carried some risks with it. Yes. Because she was this young female. Yes. Who was... Alone. Alone, nice looking, and she was always pretending to be a very vulnerable person. Yes. Somebody who was grieving, somebody who lost somebody very and important. that one dude that wanted to take her clothes off, what if he hadn't taken no for an answer? You know what I mean? Exactly. In fact, that's what it said in an article was that she found herself in a lot of situations where she would get groped, mm. she would get propositioned. Mm -hmm. And so Harry Houdini tried to convince her to carry a gun, but Rose never would. She truly was a fearless female. She really was. She just kept on going. And on the flip side, she actually earned the nickname among her fellow Secret Service people and Houdini as the Rev. Apparently back then, if you were found to be a medium who was scamming people, you were open to prosecution. So a lot of them would try to get away with it by using religion as their cover. And they would actually establish these spiritualist churches. They would have hymn singing. They would have sermons. They would collect offerings. And in the course of a lot of these spiritualist churches, somehow or other, Rose would keep getting propositioned to get ordained. Oh, no. And it would cost her a little fee. Uh -huh. And then she'd end up paying money. And so everybody started calling her the Rev. Like Reverend? Yes, because she had been Reverend ordained Rose. so many times in the <laughs> spiritualist church. Oh, no. But probably one of the biggest things that Rose did along with Houdini was testify before Congress in support of the Copeland Bloom Bill. It was 1926 and this was a bill that was supposed to outlaw fortune telling in Washington. More specifically, it was supposed to outlaw the practice of, quote, pretending to tell fortunes for reward or compensation. Okay. Mm in May of 1926, Rose testified. Sounds like most of her testimony centered around these recent undercover experiences that she had had in Washington, D.C., where she was visiting this famous person named Jane Coates, who was a notable Washington medium. And what was important about this was Rose shared testimony where she quoted this medium, Jane, as telling Rose that Houdini's crusade against spiritualism was pointless, that he was never going to be successful because some of Jane's customers included four senators and another very important figure. Oh. Here's the quote Rose passed along from Jane. Why try to fight spiritualism when most of the senators are interested in the subject? I know for a fact that there have been spiritual seances held at the White House uh -oh. with President Coolidge and his family. Oh. This caused an uproar, yeah. of course. Jane denied it, but the emotions ran so high that the New York Times later reported, today's session was unusually disorderly and came near winding up in a free-for-all fistfight. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now, Houdini also testified, and it was even more dramatic, but that's not the point of this story. So right. I'm just going to say, ultimately, the bill failed to pass. Really? They did, yeah, it didn't. It failed. And less than six months after these Washington hearings, Houdini ended up dying on Halloween. Mm -hmm. Again, that's not really the point of the story, but just to kind of wrap that up. And it was an accidental death. Well, ish. most people feel like it was an accidental death, but that college kid yeah. punched him when he wasn't prepared. It, like exacerbated something that was already there. Right. Yeah. Some people speculated that it might have been, um, what's the, the word, more premeditated really? because he had received a lot of death threats from spiritualists. But most everybody really believes it was that accident I don't know. theory that I mean, you were just discussing. Saying that that way, I don't know. Maybe they sent that kid. But you couldn't have known that he had appendicitis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
to follow up on something you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting side note, too, about the fact that Houdini really did want to believe in the afterlife mm-hmm. and how he set up those secret codes, not just with Bess, but actually with around 20 of his friends. Rose was one of them. Okay. So he had set it up with these loved ones, these people who were very close to him, so that they would know if he ever truly did communicate with them after his death, it was legit. Did they all have the same code phrase or I different believe ones? they were different ones. Okay. Yes. Rose, as late as 1945 reported, quote, his message has not come through. Okay. But she was looking for it. Okay. And as you said, his wife, Bess, of course, every week, I think they said every Sunday, she would kind of go into a dark room hoping to communicate with him. And she did. She tried this for 10 years and she gave up in 1936 saying that 10 years was long enough to wait for any man. (laughs) And supposedly she said, good night, Harry. Oh. Yeah. Mm. But Rose kept going. After Houdini's death, remember she was only with him two years. Yeah. She kept going. So that's why she was only with him two years. He died. He died. Okay. Yes. She continued the work, but now she's the one leading it. It wasn't with his group. Yeah. She took on clients that had an interest in combating fraud, which included police agencies, insurance companies, better business bureaus. She turned it into her work to kind of expose frauds. And she would give lectures on how to spot a phony psych. She would reveal theatrical tricks. She would do all of those things, basically continuing as this undercover person who's who's exposing trickery. It's really sad that she could make a career out of it. That means that it was happening that much. That is a good point. This is, again, when she started writing many of those newspaper and magazine articles. In fact, that book that I mentioned earlier, remember I said on Criminal, they interviewed Tony Wolf. The book that he was talking from was an illustrated anthology of Rose's original novel. 1929 newspaper article series where she detailed her adventures as a debunker of these spiritualism scams and exposed all those secrets. So she never wrote a book. She only wrote newspaper articles? Well, she wrote all those articles that this fellow, Tony Wolf, turned into an anthology. But at one point, she did write an unpublished autobiography called So You Want to Attend a Seance. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where that is, but I saw it mentioned and I'm like, we have to include that. Rose never married, but she had a great sense of humor about it. In 1937, she told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, quote, I never married, but I have received messages from 1,000 husbands and twice as many children in the afterlife. (laughs) Invariably, they told me they were happy where they were, which was not entirely flattering to me. (laughs) I know, isn't that cute? I'm happier without you, Ma. She was also a very insightful woman, and over her many years of working in this business, she made an observation that I thought was kind of sad. Mm -hmm. She noticed that the these fakers, these scam artists, whatever you want to call them, really proliferated during the hardest, the worst, the most frightening times when Americans were most in need of solace and reassurance. Mm, That's sad. She was still on the job after the next World War. And in a 1951 Saturday Evening Post article that she wrote called I've Unmasked a Thousand Frauds, here's what she said. This is a little bit of a longer quote. We're kind of getting close to wrapping up here. Here's what she said. To these charlatans who take a cruel advantage of human grief and anxiety, war brings boom times. The anguish of friends and relatives of dead, wounded, or missing servicemen offers a fertile field for heartless deception. Fathers, mothers, wives, sweethearts, and others close to those in the armed service flock to the seances of these counterfeit dealers in the occult. They receive messages from the beyond, plenty of them, provided the usual offering is donated. Mm. I do not impugn spiritualism as a sect 
or as a sincere religious belief. There are many intellectually honest persons, some mediums included, who get solace from a belief in contacts with the afterworld. My work and this article concern only those mediums who deceive trusting persons. Mm -hmm. Is there any medium who can actually call up the spirits of the dead and put them into verbal communication with the living? I don't know. There may be. All I can testify to is that I have never met any. Of the well over 1,000 mediums I have investigated who claim to have this power, I have never found one who was not a fraud. Wow. In fact, she went on to add (laughs) that she did, however, get a lot of spirit messages from a person who was actually sitting on the other side of her saying that all was well in the afterlife because she had taken like a friend with her and then she would supposedly get messages from that dead friend who was actually alive and well (laughs) on her right side. That's funny. Yeah. (laughs) So while Houdini had given her start, Rose definitely took the opportunity that had been given to her and she ran with it. Mm. As we've said, a 1949 Hearst Syndicate article described her as perhaps the only woman Ghostbuster in the world. They used the word Ghostbuster in 1949? They did, in 1949. That's cool. And before she died, on April 10th, 1968, at the age of 75, she had lived for decades in an apartment at 310 West 24th Street in Manhattan, and she supposedly kept it very well lit because, after years of attending seances, she told these people in this article in 1949, I get tired of dark rooms. Oh, oh, Rose. So there you go. Rose Mackenberg. Very cool lady. Very cool. Armchair psychologist. So for our armchair psychologist segment, I thought, let's just make this really informal. I just want to talk about our theme is fearless female. What are your thoughts about Rose Mackenberg as the subject of our fearless female episode? She just was. She was the definition of it. I cannot imagine putting myself in those kind of situations today, mm-hmm. but even anytime and just being fearless. She was fearless to mm-hmm. go in there with, without protection, just counting on her wit. Mm -hmm. That is remarkable to Mm -hmm. me. I agree with you. I mean, even in much lesser circumstances, I don't love conflict. No. I don't don't like conflict. No. But we're talking about a woman who is putting herself in a situation where people's livelihood is at stake. This is how these people made their money. They cared about keeping their reputation as this psychic or as this medium. And if you came in and threatened their livelihood, I could see them getting very irate, very hostile. We've talked about game shows make me anxious so can you imagine me in this kind of situation where i like you said we're talking to somebody and we're standing between them and their income Mm -hmm. oh no 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 these are that is a brave brave woman and Mm -hmm. i very much admire her and on top of that the emotional reaction because not just their income but they humiliated these people they called them out publicly in front of their friends their family their neighbors did you say she did get death threats did she get them or did I Harry? I never heard that she got them. Okay. She may have. It was Harry who they called out as receiving I wonder, a number of them. I wonder if it's because he kept protecting her so that if he outed her as the person who was doing it, then they would know who the mole was. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? That's interesting. I wonder that too. I never saw it mentioned. I suspect he probably did not call her out. Mm-hmm. Although since they were traveling and it was a different time period, even if he had, you know, if you're moving from Chicago to Indianapolis, nobody... And she changed disguises so much. Right. So she probably would have been safe even if he had called her out. But I suspect he probably did not. And then it was when in 1929, which again, three years after his death, that's when she started publicizing all of these articles. Right, and I bet that's right. when her name really got out there. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just, I can't imagine doing that. I cannot imagine being that brave 
and that there were so many of them. Mm, right. When she said over a thousand, yes. over a thousand mediums. Although I did appreciate she... that she respected if you believe this as a religion. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have any problem with that. What her problem was with is the people who are trying to profit off of it. Which is exactly what Houdini said as well. Yeah. It was so almost protective. It's the fact that these people so desperately wanted to believe that it was just heartless and cruel yes, to take yes. money from them. It's, yes. I feel like he, he was more offended because of the circumstances than just if it had been a normal person who was a scam artist mm-hmm. or a con. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was an Like he wasn't reaction. mad at Lady Conan Doyle because right. he knew that she sincerely believed what mm-hmm. she was doing and she didn't charge him. Right. So I think that's the difference right. is if you sincerely believe it, okay, fine, you can believe what you want, but you you cannot charge people and you cannot scam them. Right. It's just cruel. I guess that brings us to the end of our episode. Yes. And of course, I think we know who we're going to uh, cheers today. Yeah. Cheers to you, Rose Mackenberg, first female Ghostbuster. You we are, are amazing. Awe. Love it. Cheers. Cheers. This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas. That's me. And Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. All music was written, composed, performed, and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams. While our website was developed by Joshua Reith. If you like what you hear and you want to help keep the Scandal Water brewing, please go to our website, scandalwaterpodcast.com. Just click on your podcatcher of choice, then hit follow to subscribe. And while you're there, you might as well leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget, it's always more fun when you share your tea with others. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests advertisers or clearly professional psychologists thanks for listening